Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is going to be the fourth in a four-part series called Christ Our Mediator. We are going through the book of Hebrews section by section, and that's where we are right now. We have already seen that Christ, He is our great priest. He's also our great teacher or prophet. Last week, we saw that He is our great king as we walked all the way through Hebrews chapter 7, and then today, our great servant, Christ, a great servant. The events leading up to the section of Scripture that was read to you earlier from Leviticus chapter 16 are rather profound. Aaron, the great high priest, the one set apart by God to be the official mediator, as it was, between the people of God and God Himself, was part of what would become a family of priests. He was a Levite. He was one of the tribe that was going to be set apart for that particular purpose, and that was a family business. That was a dynasty that was handed down generation to generation. And two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, were going about the duties that they had been called to do. They were bringing a sacrifice before God on behalf of the people. And because they did so in a way that was inappropriate, in a way that was offensive to God, in a way that did not line up with how he had instructed them to do it, fire came out and consumed them on the spot, incinerated them, and burnt them to a crisp. And Moses says to Aaron, don't you even grieve for those boys. They got what they deserved. They approached God in an unworthy manner. Now that would certainly elevate the significance of the priesthood in the eyes of the people and the priests. Maybe that's why the people said to God, we don't want to go to you directly. We, we would rather not hear from you directly. We understand that in that cloud and in that smoke and that thunder and lightning and on the mountain that we're not even allowed to touch lest we die, there is a communication from the God of the universe, the one true living God, and we can barely bear the weight of that. We would like to have an intercessor, a mediator. Send Moses. Let him be the one who goes and talks to you, and then he can come back and tell us what's going on. He can bring the word of God to us. And what's so remarkable about the book of Hebrews is it is the unraveling of that fear manifest in Christ who came to be that mediator for us so that we could with boldness and joy come before the Father. No longer in fear and terror, but as a son, as a daughter. And he did that willingly, knowing what it would cost him to do so. And in the Westminster, uh, no, sorry, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, it says this of his role as mediator. Quote, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, and underwent the punishment due to us which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrow in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, 
was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6 is the scriptural basis and explanation for that work just described to you that the Lord took on joyfully in order that he might accomplish it perfectly and put to end once and for all the human ceremonial priesthood of the Old Covenant. So if you have your Bibles, look down at Hebrews chapter 8 and just follow along as I read the first six verses of this chapter. This is God's Word. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This is God's Word. This is the divinely inspired explanation of what it means for Christ to have a better ministry. Yes, He is our mediator, but He is also the one who serves as mediator. It is not merely a post that he holds, but it is a work that he does, and it is better than any other mediator. It is a better ministry, and this is exactly what the author is trying to convince the believers, Jews, likely living in Rome, who again were tempted to go back to their old way of living, their old religion, their Jewish history, that in light of the persecution they were facing, they thought, maybe if I just go back to that, I'll be able to avoid all of this trouble. And the author wants to rescue them from that line of thinking. And so in describing the better ministry of Christ, we have sort of three points this morning, if you want to follow along. We're going to see where it is, why is it there, and what makes it better. Where is it? Verses 1 to 3. Why is it there? Verses 4 to 5. And what makes it better. Now, last week we covered 28 verses. So this week I'm only going to cover six, which means if you were to average them out, it's still a lot of text over two weeks. 
But these are big ideas, and they're contained in these units, and I think it's really important for us to understand them all together. So let's take a few moments today. Let's look at these six verses. We're going to work our way through it, and I think you're going to find it extremely helpful. You're going to see why it is that this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. Why did he do it for us? Why was it necessary? So first of all, let's answer the question, where is it? Where where is this better office that is being held? It begins here in verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. I like it when the author says something this clear. He says, here's the point. Now, he is getting to his point in what looks to us to be eight chapters in. So it's not like he started right at the very beginning. He gave a lot of lead-up and a lot of explanation. But here we are at this point in the epistle to the Hebrews, which may have been a sermon originally. Whichever it was, however it was delivered, at this point, the author is saying, I am going to get to the root of why I wrote. And here it is. We have such a high priest. And by the word, such a high priest, he is directing your eyes to him. He is saying, we have this kind of high priest. Do you want to know what type of high priest Jesus is? He is this kind. We have such a high priest. And he will go on then to describe him. And the first word that he uses is seated. He is seated. Now, this is the point where we need to understand a common word that runs through the first six verses of chapter 8. And it's the word minister. The word minister in verse 2, the word serve in verse 5, and the word ministry in verse 6 are all the same word. Now, when I originally began looking at this, I thought perhaps the word servant there is the word doulos, the word slave. In fact, in the uh, servant passages of Isaiah, so Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52 and 53, we read that the coming Messiah is going to be the servant of the Lord. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it is that word doulos, that word slave. But that's not the word that's used here. Other places, uh, Jesus is said to be a servant, and it's the word that we translate into English deacon, diakonos. But it's not the word deacon here either. He's not a slave, doulos. He's not a servant, deacon. It's a word that we get our English word liturgy from. And a liturgy, as you know, is an order of service. It is what the ministers do in order to direct your eyes to Christ. Now, in the Old Covenant, those ministers had a lot of ceremony. They had to dress a certain way. They had to wash a certain way. They had to do certain things in a certain order. Uh, There was a great degree of tension, no doubt, because they saw things that happened to people like Nadab and Abihu. But in our day, all of that is gone. There's no ceremony, there's no uniform, there's, there's no restrictions other than to do that which is keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to direct the eyes of the church to him, their Savior. And so what Jesus does here is, is he is operating essentially as a minister or a pastor, He is the one who is in the very throne room of God, administering the order of service. He is the one who is guiding us in our worship. And so this role is very important. It's not just a servant role like a slave or a servant role like a a, a deacon. It is a servant role in the sense of bringing us to God in worship. The great guide for you in worship today is Lord Jesus himself. Directing your attention and your thoughts and your love towards the Godhead. But I want you to notice how he's doing it. He is 
seated. Now, in the original, this says seated at the right of the throne. We substitute the word hand in there, the right hand, to identify what this would be maybe in a, in a human context in a royal throne room on earth. There would be the king sitting on a throne, and to his right and to his left, there would be other thrones. And, and in many situations, what you would have there are the highest ranking people in the entire country or empire ruling with that king. Sometimes it was the king and the queen. They were co-regents. Sometimes it was the king and other men as co-regents. And then here the vision you need to have of Jesus is that he is seated. He has accomplished something. He has been reestablished in that place of absolute glory and honor that he gave up at the incarnation to become like us. And to tie the word minister with the word seated would make no sense to the Hebrew listeners. To tie the word minister with the word seated would make no sense to these Hebrew listeners. Because all they had in their mind was the old covenant liturgy, the old covenant way of worshiping God, the old covenant structure where you had a high priest who one day a year on the day of atonement, as we read in Leviticus 16, would go to make atonement for himself and his own sins and those of his family and then the sins of the people. One goat is killed, one goat is sent off into the wilderness. Other animals are sacrificed. And that particular priest, he goes in one time a year and he goes to the mercy seat and he sprinkles blood and dabs blood on that mercy seat. But the mercy seat is the only seat in the Holy of Holies. There is no chair for him to sit on. There is no place for him to relax. In fact, tradition tells us that later on they begun to put bells on the bottom of the robe so that as he moved around they would hear him and they would tie a rope around his leg in case he did something wrong and God killed him and they had to drag him out because they didn't want to go in there to get him. He was always moving, always ministering, always serving, going in for a very specific purpose and his goal was to get in and to get out. He was not lingering in the Holy of Holies. He was not waiting around for something to happen. He, he was not certainly resting, but the vision here of Christ, notice it. He's in the very holy of holies, the real one, the heavenly one. And he is seated. He is seated resting. He is seated having accomplished everything. He has absolute authority. He is ruling at this point at the right of the Father of the very throne of the king in heaven, in the throne of the king in his majesty. So the glory of the king, the authority of the king, the ruling power of the king, all of this in heaven, the very dwelling place of God. Jesus, our great high priest, has gone into the holy of holies, bringing a sacrifice not for his own sin, but being the sacrifice for our sin. And it is well received. It is accepted. And he is accepted. And so he sits and rules and reigns. No human priest ever did that. No human minister could ever do that. It is an astonishing thing to read it. It would have been audacious. It would have been offensive to people to think that Jesus would be acting like this verse 2, as a minister. You see, he is described here a minister in the holy places. And those holy places are not the holy places on earth 
like the tabernacle and the temple, these holy places are the holy places in heaven, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now in this case, what we're trying to do is understand this in relationship to the Old Covenant. So let's go back and just make sure we have it clear. In the Old Covenant, every priest was appointed from a certain family. And that family would have been from the tribe of Levi. And the job of that priest was to to go before the Lord and he was to offer gifts and sacrifices. Now, I want to just make sure you understand what this means. So, So there were gifts and there were sacrifices, two kinds. Now, the gifts are most often gifts of thanksgiving. Every, everything that was offered, every, every animal, every, every wine offering, every grain offering, wasn't for the atonement of sin. Sometimes we think that all sacrifices had to do with sin, but they didn't all have to do with sin. Sometimes you would come and you would offer a, a thanksgiving offering, or you would offer something in order to make you ceremonially clean. You could be ceremonially unclean and not be in sin. Something could just happen to you some regular event in your life, and it just made you uh, unclean, and you had to go and you had to offer a gift or a sacrifice. So sometimes for thanksgiving, sometimes for cleansing, sometimes for sin. But here it's saying that that priest goes and he offers both. That's a regular act of a priest. And so because of that, Jesus here is described as also being a priest, also being a mediator, also being a minister who brings these sacrifices to God. And notice what he does. He brings a sacrifice, but the sacrifice is of himself. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Isn't it comforting to know? And I hope you're comforted by this today. That Christ didn't just offer a sacrifice that was acceptable, but he offered himself as acceptable. Your salvation, if you're a believer today, is anchored to the promise of a sacrifice. Somebody had to die. And if it's not you, it's somebody else. And the great hope in this passage, the great hope in Hebrews, is that that one who died wasn't just a really, really good person, way better than you, but it was actually the only perfect person, holy person, God himself. God offered God in your place. God crushed God in your place. God submitted himself to be killed in your place. And therefore, the very security that you have in your salvation is anchored to the work in the person of God, not the work in the person of you. And it's tempting sometimes to doubt. It's tempting sometimes to forget what really happened in the act of regeneration. And I was, I was reminded of that this week because as we were talking about it, staff pastors, we were... We were getting together like we normally do early in the week, and we're talking about the passage. And we brought up a book that I think Dave quoted earlier, uh, John Murray's uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And um, a couple of us had the book with us, and we were kind of looking at it and talking about the parts we liked and found out we were actually literally highlighting the same sections in the book, which, which is actually not that uncommon if anyone's read it, because if you're like me, you end up highlighting most of the book. And I gave up highlighting. Like, there's some whole chapters. I'm like, ah, whatever, the whole chapter, just one big highlight. But, but in it, there's something that, that the author says, and I, and I thought about it, and I wanted to read it to you today, but I forgot my book. So I'm going to go down and get my book, and then I'm going to come up, and I'm going to tell you. 
and we'll see if the new camera really can follow me when I'm walking around. All right. Listen to this. So good. This, by the way, is the book. John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I recommend it without reservation. Receive this today. Receive it as an encouragement to you. If you're, um, if you're struggling today because of, of the residual sin in your life, things that you just continually have to come back before the Lord with to say, again, I'm here with this sin, this, this plaguing sin. I doubt sometimes if I'm even a Christian. I've put, I've put my focus on my performance rather than on the finished work of Christ. If that's you today, or if you know you have that temptation, listen to these words. Be encouraged. I want you to leave here filled with joy. I want you to anchor your assurance to this. The author says this, and it's brilliant. Far too frequently, the conception entertained of conversion is so superficial and beggarly that it completely fails to take account of the momentous change of which conversion is the fruit. There's a momentous change inside of a person that leads to their conversion, their repentance, their faith. He goes on, and the whole notion of what is involved in the application of redemption becomes so attenuated that it has little or no resemblance to that which the gospel teaches. Regeneration is at the basis of all change in the heart and life. It is a stupendous change because it is God's recreative act. A cheap and tawdry evangelism has tended to rob the gospel which it proclaims of that invincible power which is the glory of the gospel of sovereign grace. May the church come to think and live again in terms of the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. I hope you can take that in today. The power of God unto salvation is made active when the perfect sacrifice is sent in order to live the life that we could really never live and die the death that we all deserve to die in order that he could give us that perfect righteousness and take upon himself the punishment for the sin of all those who put their faith in him. That is the great power of the gospel to recreate. The very same power that is going to recreate the universe when the Lord returns. The very same power that's going to recreate your resurrected body is the power at work in recreating your eternal soul. And so the author has directed our attention to where this ministry occurs. It occurs in glory, in heaven, on our behalf. Heaven is where God lives. Heaven is where He abides. It is in His throne room that the scene is unfolding. And every high priest on earth operates by way of bringing these gifts and sacrifices, and it is merely a shadow of what Christ has done for us. And He did it perfectly and once and for all, and that is what has obliterated 
the need for a sacrificial system. That is why the civil and ceremonial law is utterly irrelevant today, and only the moral law of God remains. Christ has fulfilled it all. And so, he has offered himself the perfect sacrifice. Now, might I remind you of this? Christ ascended in the very body of his resurrection and remains in it today. He is a, an empathetic intercessor. He understands your weakness, your temptation. He understands what it means to live in a cursed body, and he did it without sin. He experienced temptation and trial to an infinite degree. Because of the nature of his divinity, he was not able to sin, and therefore everything that could have been hurled at him was constantly for the entire duration of his incarnation. And it is in this resurrected, glorified body that he pleads his righteousness for you. And unless you tend to think that Christ is a distant God, that, that he is not relatable to you, I want to remind you of the fact that part of the incarnation, part of the reason for the incarnation was to give us comfort in his ability to relate to us. A few months ago, um, Dave sent me a link to a sermon that was preached by Michael Reeves, and it's a brilliant sermon. It's one I've listened to literally dozens of times. And in it, he quotes Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan. Thomas Goodwin um, wrestled with doubt. Sometimes we think these people that write books never wrestle with anything, right? You become an author, that means you've, you've arrived, right? Um, yeah, not the case. He was, a, he was a pastor. Hey, worse yet, pastors. I'm sure if you're a pastor, you never struggle with anything, right? You never struggle with doubt. You never struggle with sin. You just sort of like are above it all. You just float right out the room. It's kind of six inches off the ground. For seven years, he went through this spell where he was just, he just had nothing. He had nothing to give. He, says, he was a pastor, but he was just going through the motions. He knew he was, knew he was saved. He knew he was born again. But he just felt, felt so cold. Um, like there was just really no true relationship with the Lord. And it wasn't until he began to meditate intensely on the ascension and the fact that Christ, still in that resurrected, glorified body, intercedes for him, that everything became clear. He began to really see and understand that he had a living Savior interceding for him who was going to return one day to judge the living and the dead. And in an effort to try to comfort other believers who are struggling the same way he did, and oftentimes that's why God brings you through a trial. He brings you through a trial in order for you to come out on the other side of it and be a lot more empathetic to the people that are suffering. I can't remember who said it. Probably a lot of people did. But there was something along the lines of, you know, God can't really use a person until he's broken them. And Goodwin wrote this, and I mentioned the sermon earlier because it's quoted in that sermon. That's where I heard this first. But Goodwin says, if, if he were to try to help us understand this idea of Christ our intercessor, Christ our great high priest, Christ our servant and minister, Goodwin wishes he could do this, quote, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his bowels yearn toward us, 
even now he is in glory, the very scope of these words being magnified to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart towards them now in heaven. Unquote. He wants to encourage you by considering Christ's heart towards you. His heart of affection toward you personally. He says, if I could, I would take you up into heaven and I would take your hands and I would place them on the beating chest of the risen Jesus as a way to powerfully communicate to you his vital existence and the way that he can empathize with you as a fellow human being. This is what's so astonishing about the statement. That human being, that incarnate Son of God, has done everything that the human priesthood pointed to, and now he can rest and sit in glory, not only as priest, but also as king. You see, what's amazing about Christ is the completeness of his ministry. You had priests and you had kings, but you almost never had kings who were priests or priests who were kings. In fact, the only other example of that we covered last week in Melchizedek. But here, he is being identified as the priest king. Not only is he the king who takes the word of God, is delivered to him, and brings it here to us, his people, but he is also the priest who brings the people to God. In fact, we know that he has a threefold ministry prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who teaches, the one who gives us God's word, the one who is the king, and the one who is the priest. That is why it is up in glory, because it's perfect and complete. And so to these Hebrew believers, don't go back to the old dead system. Abandon your fixation with Judaism. Abandon all the ceremonies and rites and rituals. Forsake all of it, because none of it is applicable anymore. All you need to do is look to Christ who has fulfilled it completely. The second question, why is it there? Verses 4 and 5. Why is this ministry there? He goes on to say this. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. What an interesting statement. If Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest. Do you realize that Jesus would not qualify to be a priest? If there's anybody who has been overqualified, it's Jesus Christ. You know how that is today, right? People don't want to give you the job, and so they say, you're overqualified. If anyone was overqualified, it was him. And yet he wouldn't qualify. Because under the law, he was not accepted as a priest. He wasn't from the right tribe. He wasn't a Levite. And yet what's so astonishing is he comes down to earth and he doesn't even try to be a Levite. He doesn't try to be a servant in that way. He doesn't even want to. In fact, the most intimate conversations he has with people about the priesthood and about the temple and about the old covenant is that it was all going to be toppled. One of my favorite examples of this is the discussion he had with the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman. 
And I know we all know that story because she's the one who had the multiple husbands and he sits there, he wants a drink of water, which was amazing. Number one, that he was talking to a Samaritan, that he was talking to a Samaritan woman, that he was talking to a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. And he was asking to basically share her vessel, her drinking vessel. He would have been making himself completely unclean. I just have to say this, I don't, just so important. We talked earlier about the ceremonial unclean. You can be unclean, but not, not sinning. Jesus would have been grotesquely unclean. He could not have gone into the temple, do you realize, after what he did? Jesus, the holy son of God, never ever seen, would have been horrendously unclean for having, number one, gone into Samaria and then all the other things that he did and then drinking off, sharing the, the water pitcher with this woman. And we know that story and, and how she's converted and she goes in and becomes the first evangelist in, in the city. But, but there's some part of it that I, I hope you understand. And that is, in order to sort of deflect attention from her sin, she gets into a theological debate with Jesus. So he wants to address the sin issue, and then she goes off and says, well, you know, your people worship at a different temple than our people. Your people worship on a different mountain. And, and, and Jesus, and it's true, because the Samaritans worshiped on a different mountain with a different temple, and the Jews were on a different mountain with a different temple, and Jesus doesn't take the bait. He says, fine, you want to talk theology? It's as simple as this. There will come a point in time where neither of us are worshiping on any mountain. Isn't that an amazing statement? He doesn't defend the priesthood. He doesn't defend the old covenant. He goes, there's going to come a point in time, about 40 years after he said it, when that temple is going to be obliterated. We're not going to worship on either one of these mountains. And it doesn't even matter anyway, because it's not going to be about how you worship ceremonially. He says, you're going to worship in what? Spirit and truth. And that's where we are today. So he didn't come even to establish any kind of ceremonial religion. He didn't come trying to even rescue the priesthood and make it better. He wasn't looking to, you know, make the priesthood great again. He wasn't trying to, to renovate or revive anything. He wasn't trying to, you know, bring the nation back to God. He didn't care. He said, this is the whole thing. It's on a, it, it, this is a time bomb. Nothing's going to happen here soon. It's all about spirit and truth. And so he comes, he says, to reflect the fact that he was not even qualified to be a priest since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law and he couldn't do it. Look at verse 5. They serve, same word, by the way, is minister. So they minister, you could say. They minister something, though, that is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Underline that. The heavenly things. Heavenly things. More excellent things, he's going to say in verse 6. Better things. The things that are in glory. You see, the priest was only there to shadow what was real. And what was real was the ministry in heaven. And he says as much, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Why is Jesus' ministry located in heaven? Because all the ministry on earth was a reflection of what's in heaven. All the ministry on earth, all of the ceremony was meant to reflect what was already a reality in glory. In fact, if you go back and reread Exodus 25 and 26 and 27, you see verse after verse, instruction after instruction about what this temple is supposed to be like, all of the furnishings, all of the, the uh, uh, fabric, all of the ceremony, all the clothing, all the attire, all the different things they had to do in order to be able to approach God in a way that wasn't going to result in their ensuing death. And he lays it all out for them, chapter after chapter, and it is all a shadow. It is all pointing to the reality that existed in heaven. 
What he means is that before the foundation of the world, the lamb that was slain has already been showing in the very courtroom of heaven what it was going to mean for all of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life to be able to one day be in the presence of God, clothed perfectly in the righteous white robes of the active obedience of Christ. And so before the very first stitch was sewn in the high priestly garment, Christ had already, in effect, done the work. And everything that was mapped out for the people in the nation of Israel, for all of their religious ceremony, was merely reflecting something that was already reverberating throughout all of the universe from heaven that had happened before the foundation of the world. And so when Christ comes, he says, I've already fulfilled all of this. Because I am like that temple. You tear this down in three days, I'll raise it up again. And they thought he was talking about the temple. He's not talking about the temple. Tear the temple down. It doesn't matter. It's just a building. I'm the temple, he said. I represent everything that the temple is giving you hope for. So why is it there? It's there because it's reality. Let me ask one more question. What makes it better? What makes it better? Look at verse 6. But, you could say now or however, the author concludes, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, there's our word again, a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. That's a difficult way of saying it, so let me unpack that a little bit. He says here that he has obtained a ministry through his work, through what he has accomplished, he has obtained this ministry that is as much more excellent compared. His ministry is just as better than the old ministry as the new covenant is than the old covenant. His covenant is better. His ministry is better. His sacrifice is better. And the word better doesn't even begin to scratch the surface because it goes from being inadequate to being absolutely perfect. I mean, that's not just better. <laughs> it's perfect goes all the way to the very extreme. And the reason why we say it's better is because it's him. He is the one who does the ministry. He is the prophet, priest, king. He's the one that came to offer himself. You see, I think that what you would probably have if you were to ask the average person in the church there, which again might be in Rome, these are Hebrews, they're having a dialogue as it were with maybe somebody in town and they were trying to explain what it is that gives them some satisfaction and security with God. They, they would say something along the lines of, well, I follow these rules that God's given me. I've got this structure that he's laid in place and so as long as I go through the, the motions, I'm good with him. I mean, I accomplish everything that he wants me to accomplish and that, that means we have a good relationship. I obey, he blesses me. They can go back into the old covenant. They can show some evidence for that, that if you do what I tell you, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. So they live their life trying to honor God by obeying him in hopes that in return, they'll receive blessings. But that isn't an old covenant phenomenon. That's how a lot of new covenant believers live as well. Many, many, many new covenant believers who, who say they understand the gospel still live in this constant state of, well, as long as I do really good and I, and I, and I honor God and everything, he'll bless me. That's the deal. That's how it works. And if something goes wrong in my life, it must be because I made a mistake, or I don't want to make a mistake because I don't want God to take away these blessings, and there is this sort of reciprocal understanding. Beloved, listen. 
what, what, what he's saying in this text is that he came to live the perfect life according to the law and then apply that to you so that when he looks at you, you have already fulfilled the law perfectly. There is no up and down. There's no scale. There's no grade. You are always and completely and forever perfect in his eyes because the perfection isn't something that, that you and I earned. It's a perfection given to us by the, past, uh, by the sacrifice of Christ and his perfection. Take comfort in that this morning. Great comfort in that. And so he says, it is more excellent than the old covenant because the old covenant could never make you perfect. The word mediates here is it means to, to go before. And so over in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, he uses the word again. Listen to it. He says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Could it be any clearer? Every single transgression that could have been given to you under the old covenant has been utterly and completely and perfectly paid for. So all you do is receive the blessings. He comes to give that. And then again in chapter 12 and verse 24, the word mediate or mediator is used again. Listen to it there. He says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant through the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> Even the blood sprinkled, his blood, testifies to a better redemption. Now, let's go back to where we started in Leviticus 16. When the high priest went and he made atonement for his own sins and for the sins of the people, here's the question, class. Did that sacrifice work? Were the sins atoned for? The answer is yes. The answer is that in God's economy, as he is working through redemptive history, he says, yes, by doing this, the sins will be atoned for. But were they atoned for ultimately? Well, that's a little more complicated. You have to understand that all of redemptive history is like a parade, and God is looking at it from the rooftop of the skyscraper, and he sees it from beginning to end. He sees that all of these Old Testament sacrifices were pointing forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and then all the people who came after were looking to Christ as the one who saved them. And so essentially everybody in the Old Covenant was looking forward to Christ and everybody after Christ looks back to him. He is the focal point. He is the center of it all. He is the, the, the climax of redemptive history. And so his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension are what ultimately and perfectly paid that debt of all the sins for all who would ever believe. So did that sacrifice work for them? Yes. Was it the animal itself that saved them? No, because they knew the blood of bulls and goats could never do that. But it pointed to the ultimate one who would come and give his life a ransom for many, and that was Christ. So it makes it better. It is more excellent. It is built on not only a better sacrifice and a better covenant, but it is also enacted, notice it, on better promises. This new covenant has new promises. Why? Because the, the deal has changed. The old covenant is gone. The old covenant has been, been, been completely 
wiped away except for, the, the, again, the law of God contained in the Ten Commandments. That, that relationship, though, the um, you do this and I'll do that kind of relationship, as outlined in the Old Covenant, is gone. There are now new promises, better promises. And the promises he has in mind here are the promises brought to us through Christ. What is that promise? It's the promise that those who put their faith in him will have all of their sins forgiven and a righteousness granted to them that is perfect. It wasn't a matter of do this and I'll do that. Rather, he says, I've done it all for you so that you can obey. I go back to the quote we read earlier about regeneration. You see, regeneration is the first act of God in that order of salvation. It is when he takes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It's when he quickens and alivens and awakens the spirit, the soul, when he recreates as it was the person from the inside, that's what gives them then the ability to believe, the ability to be converted, the ability later on to bear fruit. And all the fruit bearing and all the obedience and all the gratitude is absolutely guaranteed in the regeneration. So Christ said that he came so that when we put our faith in him, everything that he accomplished will absolutely be perfected through us. And that's why the new covenant is eternal. And that's why the new covenant is better. That's why the new covenant is perfect. That's why these promises supersede everything else. And that is why, as we see in the Old Testament, the old covenant could never stand. In fact, the old covenant, God says, ended in a divorce. Because the nation wasn't faithful. Read Jeremiah. God divorces the nation. Now he brings her back later and he restores her, but that old covenant was broken. The new covenant never will be because the one who enacted the covenant is the one who sealed the covenant, is the one who lived out the covenant, is the one who guarantees the covenant. And so therefore, whoever he invites into that, as Jesus said in the last Passover that was ever needed, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. That is why we rejoice and celebrate on communion because we do that in remembrance of him. Be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, that your risen Savior lives to intercede for you. Be encouraged that your risen Savior lives to encourage you. And be encouraged that your risen Savior lives to secure you. The assurance of your salvation is anchored to the finished work of Christ. And therefore, if we don't look to ourselves and examine ourselves for confidence, we look to him. And in the times where we struggle, we find our hope and our security and our joy in the finished work of Christ, which he has done for us. Our great priest, our great teacher, our great king, and our great servant. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, just amazed by these truths this morning and, and as we have thought about them again, just reminded of our need to be filled with joy and confidence in the finished work of Christ our Savior. We thank you for the historic confessions that draw attention to this reality and for the fact that we are not a people set adrift to just come up with our own interpretations and impressions of what you have done for us in Christ, but those who are anchored to, to many centuries of faithful men and women who have taken what was taught by you and then your apostles and 
contained in your scriptures and handed them down faithfully to us, that it could anchor, anchor our souls during these difficult seasons. Thank you for this precious church and for everybody who is here. And I pray that even today we would depart from here built up, encouraged, filled with joy. Our eyes would be just taken off ourselves and, and, and put back on you. You came as our king, the one who brings that word to us, and then you act as our priest, bringing us to God. Uh, you came not with a new set of rules, but to come and tell us that entire system was wearing out, that entire system was doomed to extinction. You came not to tell us how and where to worship, but to worship instead in spirit and in truth. And then you fill us with your spirit and you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that the only criteria by which we will ever be judged is the very holiness that is granted to us by you at conversion. And that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. That we might be blameless in your sight. Therefore, let us respond with hearts filled with gratitude for the ability to bear fruits of righteousness. The ability and the desire to be fruitful. May the good works that define us merely be that which we celebrate as evidence that you have done the work and begun the work that you have promised to finish. We pray these things in your name. Amen.